following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're going to be tackling a rather large chunk of scripture this morning, uh, Daniel's chapter 10, 11, and 12. This is probably insanity at some level. Um, we're obviously not going to do this verse by verse unless we want to be here till tomorrow. Um, but I do want to read, just to, by way of introduction, uh, to kind of set the stage, I want to read uh, Daniel chapter 10. So we'll start there. And uh, this, this uh, title of my sermon is Things to Come, as Daniel really gets this remarkable vision of, uh, for him, what would have been the future. A lot of it's the history for us, but for Daniel it was the future, it was things to come. So let's begin by looking and reading, uh, beginning in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Uh, so that's kind of an introduction, by the way. Okay, and then we switch really to Daniel's perspective, right? In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Which, by the way, is just kind of a polite way of saying I passed out. <laughs> um, and behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the later days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, 
By reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia when I go out. Behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is, trans- what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. All right, so this is an amazing scene, picture of Daniel uh, getting this vision and praying for 21 days. And then uh, this, uh, has this vision, this person appears, probably uh, God, the first person, uh, Jesus and his pre-incarnate form shining in bright linen uh, and, and uh, the effect of, of encountering God even for Daniel is that he just passes out <clears throat> too much right uh, then he is uh, kind of revived by another being probably an, an angel clearly an angel <clears throat> messenger <clears throat> who is sent really as the answer to his prayer right and uh, he finishes by saying at the end of this long interchange of kind of reviving Daniel, getting him propped back up so he can receive this revelation, this message. Um, he says, I'm going to tell you what's inscribed in the book. Right? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Uh, now, uh, how many of you want to know what is in the future? Anybody? Anybody? I think we all do, right? It's part of human nature. We would like to know what, what the future holds, right? And uh, some of this could be just kind of general curiosity, but I really think it's more than for, for our nature. It's more than just being curious. I think we want to know the future because uh, an unknown future feels, makes us feel helpless and out of control, right? And I think what's really at the heart of it is we, we, we have this idea that if we can know what's coming, we can somehow control it or avoid it or... or get around it somehow, right? We won't be help, feel helpless about the future. Um, but of course, this only works if we can know what's going to happen and if we have the power to change it, right? To alter the outcome. And this actually is a... Uh, one of the reasons I think this is kind of how it really... What's really behind this is it's, it's a theme in many movies, right? And I'll let you run through your own list of movie reels and think about where this theme comes up, where there's a sense of trying to find out the future so we can control it. But the most famous and obvious one, that old movies, old movies, actually, Back to the Future, right? That's kind of the theme of these whole three movies of Back to the Future, uh, you know, trying to manipulate and control and change the outcome, right? By either going back in time or forward in time, whatever, right? And there's this great quote, right, by Dr. Brown, Dr. Emmett Brown, this great quote that I just love. He says to Marty, the younger character, his sidekick in the movie. He says, he says this. He says, the future is what you make it, Marty. Uh, if you don't like the way the world is, you can change it. That's the power of time travel. Okay? And that's kind of the message of the movie. And not that we can time travel, but the message is you 
and I can change the future. Right? We have power, right? We have choice. We can make it anything we want. Amen. Let's go with that one, right? Uh, you like that idea, right? Sounds good, right? Sounds great. We want to believe that. Yes, I can change the future. I control it. Problem is, is it true? Right? Is it true? Can we really control the future? Can we, if we uh, know what's going to happen, do we have this power? Right? We, we desperately want this power. Right? We desperately, as human beings, want this power uh, to do what Dr. Brown says, right? To change the future, right? Uh, but is this realistic, right? First off, can we really know what's going to happen? First question. And second question, when we find out what's coming, when we find out what is in the future, can we actually do anything about it? Can we change it? Can we alter it, right? Is this realistic? And that's really uh, kind of the two big questions that these last three uh, chapters of Daniel unpack for us, right? Can we know the future and can we do anything about it? So let's kind of look at these in turn, these questions in turn, and then see how it applies to our, our modern life. Um, um, so so first thing is, can we know the future? Well, the good news is uh, this, this uh, angel, Gabriel, shows up uh, with the assistance of Michael and some spiritual battles that we'll talk about later shows up to, to tell Daniel what's going to happen. Right? He says, I'm going to tell you what's inscribed in the book. I'm going to tell you uh, the future of the world. Right? I'm going to unpack this for you and explain exactly what is going to happen. And so the good news is we can know the future. Right? We can at least know some things about the future. Um, he says... Uh, that's why I've come to you. He says, Daniel, you know why I've come? I've come to you, and I've got some other battles to fight with the prince of Persia and with the prince of Greece, but I'm going to tell you in between my battles, I'm taking a break to tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Right? And the, 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 the point here is that we can know the future because God knows the future, and in his grace he has at times uh, decided to reveal it to us. Right? And so he's revealing it to Daniel. And so in chapter 11, we're not going to read chapter 11. It's really long, and, and it's really confusing, and it's a lot about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And the kings of the north does this, and the king of the south does that, and they kind of go back and forth. Right? So I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to just highlight a couple things out of it. What, what's amazing is that in, in, in chapter 11 of Daniel, we get this amazing glimpse into the future of things to come. Uh, at least Daniel did. Now, we live uh, 2,400 years after, almost 2,500 years after Daniel, and much of what was revealed to him as future is now for us ancient history, right? In fact, most of what's recorded here uh, has already occurred, right? So for us, it's kind of a, a look back. But what, what it gives us, because we can look back, because we can check the accuracy of what Daniel got as prophecy, as a prediction of the future, with what actually happened. And what's remarkable about Daniel chapter 11 is uh, that it, is, it fulfills uh, and describes history exactly as it unfolded, right? with incredible detail. Right? And so uh, the, the reality is that God does know the future. That's one of the big takeaways from chapter 11. God knows, and he knows with 
crazy detail about what's going to happen. And most of what's described here uh, in uh, the verses 1 down through verse 35 describes what happens uh, in, in, the, in the world at that time from, the, from Cyrus, who was uh, uh, the conqueror uh, from the Medes and the Persians who conquered Babylon. So from Cyrus, uh, who uh, lived uh, from about 486 B.C., up until the time of a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, super bad guy, Antiochus IV, uh, who lived about 163 B.C., Right, so this is a period of, uh, of over some 300, 300 plus years. Right? And, uh, and if you read through this, you'll see it's got a lot of stuff here. And it unpacks uh, these kings and rulers and their ongoing conflicts over this 300 plus years with incredible detail. Right? One commentator says that in these first 35 verses of Daniel, there are at least 135 specific prophecies which are... Perfectly fulfilled, 135. Right? That's why I'm not going to read it all. <laughs> a lot there, right? Uh, but I do want to highlight some of it, right? Uh, so it starts off in verse two. It says, "And now I will show you the truth." He says, "I'm going to unpack this for you. Behold, three more kings after Cyrus will come. They will arise in Persia, and then a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece." Right, and we and again I won't unpack this, but this is exactly what happens in the in the uh, sub- subsequent history of the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, this last guy who stirs up things against Greece turns out to be kind of a bad move because it turns out you don't really want to make Greece angry because uh, coming up in the ranks in Greece at that time was this little this little youngster named Alexander going to school under Aristotle. And um, he became Alexander the Great, which is described next. He says, Then a mighty king shall arise, Alexander the Great, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. That's exactly what he did. He conquered the world, uh, a good chunk of it, and uh, did whatever he wanted and conquered everything he could in about 13 years. Uh, but then it says in verse 4, and as soon, this is a brief history, right? And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven which is exactly what happened. Alexander died, and he didn't leave a successor. He left no heir. Well, his heir wasn't powerful enough. And so the four main generals who ruled, uh, took control of his army, split up his kingdom in, in four parts. And each of these generals ruled a different part of it, right? Um, so, uh, so, uh, so, so then you get this picture of these, these four kingdoms. Uh, and then the focus shifts really to uh, two of the kings, right? So he doesn't really go into, doesn't really care about all four kingdoms. And, and the focus here obviously is Israel, right? Daniel's concerned about Israel. He doesn't really care about Rome or Africa. <laughs> he worries about Israel. That's his country. And so what we find in, the, in what, what, un, what unfolds for the rest of the chapter is that there's this king of the north uh, and there's this king of the south. And in between them is Israel. And these kings of the north and kings of the south get engaged in this huge tug of war, this conflict, this tug of war of power, back and forth between who's, who's got the most power, who's got the most control, who's got the most territory, right? And if it's a great tug of war, the rope in the middle is Israel, right? And they're getting tugged back and forth between these two kings, right? And so 
The king in the north, uh, the first one, his name is Seleucus. Uh, he was one of uh, Alexander's generals, and he, became, he becomes the ruler in the north, and then his sons and grandchildren and descendants become uh, the kings of the north, right? Uh, and they rule over a region known as Syria. Probably not like modern Syria, probably a much greater region that included Babylon and what's modern-day Iraq, a good chunk of the north, right? Uh, the king of the south uh, was the general Ptolemy, Ptolemy, right? And Ptolemy and all of his kids and grandkids, his descendants, ruled in Egypt, right? So what you have is Syria and the Seleucids up here, and you got Ptolemy and the Egyptians down here, and they're battling back and forth in between is Israel, right? And, uh, and Israel is caught in this crossfire between these, this tug of war, um, and this goes on for over 300 years, right? Um, so again, I'm not going to go through the whole thing as they have these back and forth tug of wars. But let me just give you one example of, of how specifically these prophecies are given and fulfilled, right? So this prophecy is not just like, well, there's going to be some kings in the north and they're going to have some power and there's going to be some kings in the south. And it, No, it's not that generic. It is extremely specific. So look at Daniel 11, verses 16 and 17, right? It says, But he who comes against him shall do as he wills. And again, he's talking about these two kings of the south and kings of the north, right? Uh, He shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel, with destruction in his hand. With the defeat of the Egyptians at Sidon... um, uh, so, so, So here... I'm sorry... So here's the, here's the explanation of that. Uh, uh, the king of the north defeated the Egyptians at Sidon, and Antiochus, not Antiochus IV that we're going to talk about later, but this is the first Antiochus, okay? Uh, he's, he's the one who invades, and uh, he acquires complete control over Israel, over Phoenicia and Palestine, over Israel. And... Um, uh, it had been under his power before, and we see that in some previous verses, and then he lost it. But then he gets it back, and it says now he's in the beautiful land, that's Israel, and it becomes a permanent possession of the Syrian Empire. And this happens around uh, mid-200 B.C., late, late, or, almost to the end of the 2nd century, right? Or beginning of the 2nd century. So... Um, this, this fact becomes extremely important because this paves the way for Antiochus Epiphanes, the bad guy that we'll see at the end of the chapter. Um, so he comes into the Holy Land and it says that he, 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 he does bad things to them, right? He, he persecutes them. He shall set his face uh, to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And, 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 and it says then, that says he shall bring, verse 17, he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. Now, again, this is how specific this is, right? This is not just generic stuff. He says, He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Okay, so here's this prediction that this king, he gains power, and he has this ongoing conflict. He sets his face against all of his enemies, and he gives his daughter as a way to gain control, Right? Well, well, here's the explanation of how this unfolds in real-life history. It says, uh, one commentator writes, Backed by Antiochus' army, the Syrians forced terms of peace or an alliance upon the Egyptian king. 
So that's how it worked. You know, it's like, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse, right? Kind of thing. I won't kill you all if you, if you agree to peace. So he forces this alliance, this peace agreement. And then, this is a very common political thing in those days, to kind of put the icing on the cake, to make sure that the Egyptians stay friends, friends, right? And don't attack you back. He says, hey, just as bonus, I'm going to let you have my beautiful daughter as your wife, right? Well, who was this beautiful daughter of Antiochus? Anybody know? Right, Cleopatra. See, you all knew that, right? Cleopatra. You've heard of Cleopatra, the famous Egyptian Cleopatra. This is her, right? And he gives his daughter Cleopatra to be married to uh, this Ptolemy ruler, right? And he's thinking that Cleopatra's going to kind of be like a spy, right? She's going to be like a guarantee that they're going to have peace because uh, Cleopatra's going to have influence on this Ptolemy king to make sure they're friends. But, but here's what happens. His plan doesn't work because Cleopatra actually really falls in love with the king, the ruler of Pharaoh, and uh, kind of turns against her, her dad, right, and sides with this Egyptian ruler, the, the, the king Ptolemy, right? So the plan did not succeed for Cleopatra loved her husband and supported the Ptolemy dynasty completely. All right, somebody should write a book about that. Uh, I think they did, actually. So, um, uh, so, so Daniel predicts all this, right, with detail, 200 years ahead of time. How can he do that? Because God knows, right? That's the point. That's the point. And we could go through all 135 prophecies. We'll be here till tomorrow morning. Um, most of you will fall asleep. We won't do that, right? But the point is, this is how specific the prophecies are and how specific and exact the fulfillment of them is, right? it's so specific and so accurate that uh, this is one of the few chapters in the Bible where virtually every single scholar is in agreement, right? Because the history supports the prophecy so perfectly. There's no debate over it, right? Because it's so clear and so obvious, right? In fact, it's so obvious that some uh, some scholars, they, they don't debate the history, but they debate the time when Daniel was written, Right? And they say, well, it's so accurate, Daniel could not possibly have written this 500 years ahead of time, right, before Christ. He had to have written this after it happened. That's the only way it could be that accurate. Uh, but I believe that that's not the answer. The answer is, no, Daniel could write these things because God knows. Right? He knows the future. Right? And when he chooses to reveal it to us, we can, we can have assurance that it is going to happen exactly as he said. Now, um, looking forward for Daniel, some of these things may have been a bit confusing, and and, uh, looking ahead, they may not have understood everything, but when it happened, it was obvious, and it was clear. And looking back, uh, we see that God knew, right? God knows. So, yes, so the first question, can we know the future? Yes, we can, if God chooses to reveal it to us. And we can know it with amazing clarity and accuracy where God speaks about the future um, as much as we can understand it, right? Second question is, can we do... This is the real question, right? The real question is, okay, well, now that we know the future, can we do anything about it, right? Do we have power to control it? Is Dr. Brown, Emmett Brown, right? Yes, you can change the world. You can make it anything you want, right? Well, uh, Daniel also speaks about this, right? Um, 
So God, God knows the future, but he doesn't know the future simply because he has foresight. Right? That would be one way to know the future, and that's, that's kind of the science, the magic behind a crystal ball, right? You know the stories of, in the fairy tales, so they have these crystal balls, and you can look into this crystal ball, and you can see into the future, right? Uh, is that how God knows? Well, uh, that, that actually can't work, right? That cannot work unless you can control the outcome of future, the future, right? Because uh, let's, uh, let's take Dr. Brown and, and Marty's theory that, that I can change the future. Okay, so I look into my crystal ball and the, the future is this. But then tomorrow, so, somebody does something that changes it. Well, all of a sudden, what I saw is no longer what's the future. It changed, right? And so every minute, the future becomes something very fluid, something very changing. And so I could know the future right now, but 10 seconds from now, it might be a different future, right? So the only way you could know the future and confidently speak of it with such certainty is if you control it, right? And we see that that's exactly what Daniel teaches about God's sovereignty over history. And that's what I like our thing, sovereign for eternity, sovereign in time. God knows the future because he actually controls it. And he writes some things that might be a little unsettling for us, but uh, in Daniel 10.21, the angel comes and he says, look, I'm... I've come, I've been sent to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. In other words, the script of history has already been written. And it's set. It's permanent. It's unchanging. It is destined. Right? God is so sovereign over history that from beginning to end, it is set. Right? It is set. It is written in the book. And it will not be changed. Right? I hate to tell you this, but you are not going to change the future, Marty. <laughs> right? um, Dr. Brown, you're wrong. Right? God has fixed history. And that's the only reason uh, he can write what he writes in chapter 11. Because it's set. And it doesn't matter what Cyrus does or what Antiochus or Ptolemy or Alexander the Great. It doesn't matter what they do. It's set. Right? Their victories, their conquests, their rise to power, their fall from power is determined by God because he controls it. Right? He's controlling the outcome. And you see this a couple of places in chapter 11. Uh, 11.1, it says, As for me, and this is, this, um, this is actually God speaking. You're giving this revelation. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Right? Uh, Darius didn't rise to power through his own genius or military ability. He rose to power because God appointed him and gave him that power. Right? Uh, towards, more towards the end of the chapter, verse 29, it says that, that at the appointed time, this king, of this, uh, this king shall come into the south. But it shall not be uh, this time as it was before. Right? The appointed time. Right? When, when, when it comes time, when the script says he's going to do this, he's going to do this. Okay? Uh, verse 35, And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Okay? So, so God, and, and we could look at other scriptures uh, outside of Daniel 11, but God uh, is the one who controls time. We do not, right? If we can change the future, then uh, 
then even God can't know what ha- will happen, right? Um, it becomes too fluid, so too changing, right? But God can lay out all of history from beginning to end because he's sovereign over it, and he determines what's going to happen next. Now, a lot of us don't like this, right? I don't, I don't really like this. It's like, because it makes me feel like I'm just a puppet, right? Do you ever feel like this? You feel like, well, if it's destined, if I have no, like, why should I get up tomorrow? Because it's, it's just destined. I mean, do I just have to get up because I'm a puppet? I'm a robot that's been programmed, and I just have to rigidly fulfill my destiny. Well, one of the great wonders and mysteries of Scripture is, is this uh, amazing relationship between God's sovereignty and our free will as human beings. And the truth is that, um, that we are not just powerless victims of destiny. Right? We do, uh, and God has given us free will and human choice. And it's not just an illusion. Well, it's not just some kind of magic uh, trick of God that we think we're choosing, but really we're not choosing. Right? It's, no, it's not. We, we have free will. God has created us and made us free agents in the world where we do choose. And we make choices and we make decisions. Right? Um, we, we are not simply puppets who have been programmed to carry out the script. Right? Um, we are more than that. Right? Um, but here's how it works, right? And it, it is a mystery, and I, I don't begin to be able to explain how God's sovereignty intersects with our human free will. Um, it, it is way, way beyond uh, my, my comprehension. But the, the simple answer is this. God does not control history by controlling us. Okay? God does not control history by controlling us directly. Right? We are not robots. We do have free choice. Uh, and in fact, the, the truth is we have a very active part in, un, in the unfolding of history. Right? We, we are active players in the script who have free will, who make choices, and we will ultimately be accountable for those. And we see that in this, in this passage. And again, we're just kind of surveying this. We're not going to go through verse by verse. But um, we see this because all of these kings that are listed, these rulers, uh, these are powerful kings who were free agents and were mostly, if not all, evil, wicked people. Right? And they, they hurt people. They're, they're power-hungry rulers who, you know, Alexander, he, he, he was not a nice guy. He killed people for a living, like lots of them. And he conquered and dominated, right? He was not the guy you, you really want to, like, invite over for supper, right? Um, he was a, he, these guys are evil, power-hungry, driven by greed and hunger for power, right? And God, uh, God is not responsible for their wickedness, right? He didn't make them that way. They became this way by their own choices and by their own actions. And in the end, God will, we'll see in chapter 12, God will judge them and will hold them accountable for their wickedness. Right? They'll give an answer for every evil thing they did, right? And they're responsible for it. They chose those things and they did that out of their own will, Right? They will be judged for their rebellion against God and all the pain and suffering they caused in the world. Right? And, and not only that, but we see, we see also that not only are these powerful kings who are very much free agents, they, they seem like they're loose cannons out there just 
doing evil things. And not only in Daniel's day, and, and what we see described in chapter 11, but in our modern day, right? We, we, we're surrounded by rulers who, a lot of them should be locked up in mental institutions or uh, they need help, right? They also are loose cannons and they're doing, they're doing their thing. And many of them are causing hardship all over the world, right? In their own countries. I don't name any, but you can just you know, look at the news and you see them, right? Um, but not only, not only are they out there doing their thing, but we see in chapter 10 that behind that is a whole other level of power uh, of angelic beings who are also free, free agents doing stuff in the world, right? Um, so behind these earthly rulers are even more powerful spiritual forces who are who are ex- exerting influence over human affairs, right? And you get this amazing glimpse of this in chapter 10, right? Uh, the angel says to Daniel, he says, you know, I tried to get here, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. He, he got in my way for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, and this, these, again, these are angels, uh, princes can be used to speak of angelic beings, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings, that is, these spirits, these angels of Persia, for 21 days. Right? It's an amazing picture of a world we don't see, but it's, it's all around us. Where spiritual beings, you can call them demons or angels or bad angels or good angels, are engaged in this epic spiritual battle that's going on around us. Right? And... Um, even just getting this answer to prayer to Daniel involved this three-week encounter between these, these, these spiritual forces. Now, I don't, know what they, I don't know how they fight. I don't know what their swords look like. Is this a verbal battle? I don't know. We don't know. But there's serious conflict going on. And, and it, we, we get the picture from this that, that these princes, there's these spiritual uh, beings who are behind earthly powers. And, and Paul really confirms that. He says, we, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and powers, the forces of darkness, right? He says in Ephesians chapter five, uh, 6, right? Um, so, so likewise, these, these, spiritual, these spiritual beings, these angels, are also not just puppets on a string, right? Uh, the evil angels made choices. The good angels made choices to follow God or you know, to reject God. And they, they, they have missions, they have jobs, right? And they, they have tasks they have to do in fulfilling and bringing about this history. So, so, so what's, ama- what's amazing in all this, I've got to kind of move this ahead. So you see these battles going on, kings doing what they want to do, these spiritual forces doing what they want to do. And, and through this, somehow God is sovereignly fulfilling his, his, his plan for the world. But in the midst of all of this, we see this. Uh, can we change history? No. But do we have a part in it? Yes. Can we move spiritual beings? Yes. Can we have a part in even moving kingdoms? Yes. Right. And you see this in the, in the prayer of Daniel. Right. This whole spiritual battle took place because Daniel prayed. Daniel prayed. And, and these, these epic global powers, global and even beyond this world, battles were taking place. And Daniel finds himself in the middle of these battles because he prayed. Right? And I think, I think it's just sad that we, we really don't 
understand the power we have in prayer. Right? We think when we pray, we're just throwing random things up to God, and He's already de- He's already decided everything anyway, so it doesn't really matter. It's just going to all unfold, and we have no part, and our prayers are just kind of an empty exercise in futility. But the, Daniel 10 gives this very different picture, right? Of Daniel moving spiritual forces, stirring up spiritual trouble, uh, causing battles to take place because he prayed, right? And so uh, yeah, it's true we don't uh, determine the outcome, but we are very active players, right? And, and, and our prayers have great impact in how things unfold. And that's part of God's sovereign plan. Somehow he invites us into the script, not as passive puppets, but as active agents who are part of, unfilling, of fulfilling his plan for history. First through our prayers, and then we'll see later, through our witness. And he says, blessed are those who bring many to righteousness. Uh, we may not we may not impact who the next ruler of the world is going to be, but we can have amazing impact on our neighbor by sharing Christ with them, and we can change their future for eternity by our witness. Right? By our witness. So that's amazing. So can we can we change the outcome of history? No, but we are, are we a, a significant part of fulfilling it? Yes. Yes, and we do that by our active engagement uh, in the battle through prayer and through living out the life God calls us to as his witnesses in the world. Okay, so um, again, this huge summary. I've left out tons of chapters 10 and 11. I'll let you go back and read through it and ponder it all. Uh, but, But let me just kind of wrap it up with this last problem. Okay, so... Can we know the future? Yes. Can we control the future? No. But we certainly are a part of, of its unfolding and fulfillment, right? But let me, let me just get back to one more even kind of deeper question, right? Um, why do we really want to be able to control the future, right? What is it really about? We want to control it. We want to, um, we want to know what's going to happen and we want to be able to change it. And at the, at the deepest part of that, I think, is, is fear, Right? Fear. Who of us wants to suffer? Nobody, right? Who wants to uh, plunge headlong into trouble and hardship? Nobody, right? And so what's really driving our desire to, uh, to change the future is this idea that if there's bad things coming, if there's trouble ahead, if there's going to be difficulties... Um, you know, heaven forbid that a new wave of COVID should outbreak and we have to go back to what we did, you know, a couple of years ago. Like that's just, I, I, I break out in a cold sweat when I think of that uh, and all the, how miserable that was, right? Uh, I want to do anything to avoid that, right? And that's really what's behind all this. We want to avoid trouble. We want to find ways to avoid pain and hardship. And so we want to know what's coming, uh, not, not just because we're, we want to control things, we just want to change things, but really because we're afraid and we want to avoid trouble, right? Isn't that what this is really all about? Um, and, and what we see here for Daniel is God 
unfolds this amazing vision and picture for Daniel, but not so that the Israelites can avoid it. Right? He says, look, this is going to come. Times of trouble will come, he says. And at the appointed time, it will happen. And you cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid it, right? And there's two examples of this. So chapter 11 really leads up to this character called Antiochus Epiphanes. And he becomes really the climax of the first part of the prophecy. But there's actually two bad guys. But the first one is Antiochus Epiphanes. And it says in verse 29, At the appointed time he shall return, that's Antiochus, uh, and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. So he tries to invade Egypt a couple different times. And he gets beat back and he tries again because he really wants to, he wants, he wants Egypt. Right? He, want, he doesn't want to have this tug of war anymore. And he knows the only way to end this tug of war is to take over. Right? So he wants Egypt. Right? So the second time he goes into Egypt, but it wasn't as before. In verse 30, For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged. Okay, well, what, what is that about? Well, here's the specific fulfillment of it. In 68 BC, Antiochus invaded Egypt a second time, but he was not successful. Uh, one commentator writes, um, the cause of Antiochus's failure was that he encountered opposition from the ships of the western coastlands, or Kittim, right? which is uh, symbolic for really the Mediterranean general. Mediterranean region in general. And here refers to the Roman fleet that had come to Alexandria, Egypt at the request of the Ptolemy ruler. Right, so Antiochus is marching down to Egypt and he gets there and he's almost to Alexandria ready to fight and he's sure he's going to win. And that shows up this Roman legion who just got off the ship from Rome. And uh, this is not what he expected, Right. So this Roman commander, Gaius Populus Lanus, met Antiochus four miles outside of the city. Hey, Antiochus, how's it going? Good. How's it going? How's things in Rome? Good, right? Uh, I have a letter from the Roman Senate ordering you to leave Egypt now. Right? And, and this Roman general hands Antiochus this letter. And then he takes and he draws a circle around Antiochus. And he says, you answer me before you step out of that circle. Will you turn around and leave? Or will you fall under Rome and the wrath of Rome? Well, Antiochus wasn't stupid, right? Now, he did not want to surrender to Rome. He wanted Egypt more than anything in the world. But he knew that taking on Rome was, was something, an army he could not uh, defeat. Right? He thought he could defeat uh, Ptolemy, he knew he could not defeat Rome. And so he agrees. And he turns around and he leaves and goes back home. But he is furious. He has been humiliated. And he is extremely, extremely angry. And, and he goes back where? He goes, he goes back to Israel, to Jerusalem. And he is so angry. Uh, and he is consumed with rage at what has happened to him, right? Uh, and so it says in verse 31, Forces from him shall appear and profane, profane the temple and fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, 
But the people who know their God and stand firm shall take action. And the wise shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame and by captivity and plunder. So in 167, Antiochus goes back humiliated and he turns all of his rage and wrath against the Jewish people. Right, against the Israelites, against those under the Holy Covenant. And uh, he does just a number of terrible things that are described. And we can just not time to go into detail. But he massacres tens of thousands of Israelis. He uh, desecrates the temple. He sets up a, uh, an idol of Zeus on the altar in the temple and offers pigs on it. And he, he abolishes the worship of Yahweh. Right? Uh, and it leads to this great revolt by the Maccabees, Judas Maccabee and his followers. And ultimately, they, they get rid of Antiochus, right? This is a period of, of, of hard times, of trouble and evil that the Israelites will not avoid, right? They will not avoid. And then in, in between verses 35 and 36, there's a shift. And it's, 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 hard, to, it's, it's hard to see it. And, and, um, and as we read through it, we may think that in verse 36, this is continuing uh, the description of Antiochus, but it really jumps ahead to something that's even future for us. And that's the second super bad guy described in this chapter, and that is the bad guy that comes at the very end. Right? Uh, and this king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is complete. For what is decreed shall be done. Again, this is, this is in the script, right? What's decreed shall be done. He shall pay attention to no other gods. Now, one of the reasons we know this is not Antiochus is that Antiochus honored Zeus and other gods, right? This is a god who's, this is a king, a ruler who's completely atheistic. He, he worships no god, it says, except he, he honors the god of fortress. Uh, he's a god who worships power and ultimately raw military power. And he brings great destruction uh, on the earth. Uh, in verse 39, it says, He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, meaning armies, his god of military power. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, uh, these kings will attack him and, and it goes on and describes all that happens, right? He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these uh, of Edom and Moab shall be delivered out of his hand. He shall stretch out his hands against the countries of Egypt and Egypt shall not escape. Now we know that's not true because Antiochus couldn't get Egypt, right? So this is a different king. He shall become ruler, uh, ruler of treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow him. But news from the east shall go, uh, and north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Okay, uh, th- this is uh, a description of the end times. Right? This is future for us, and it's the great Antichrist, as he's known, who will come, who will wreak even greater destruction on the world at the end. Right? Antiochus is kind of just the prototype. He's the warm-up. Right? And I would say that throughout history since Antiochus, there have been other uh, really super bad guys who, who embody what the Antichrist will be in the end. Right? Um, short story of all this is that um, 
times of trouble cannot be avoided when it's appointed, when the destined time comes. Right? And it doesn't matter if you live during Antiochus or if you're going through the, the poor people who are struggling in, Mer, in Myanmar right now at the hands of an oppressive ruler or in, in Ukraine or I mean, you can go on in, 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 in the Palestine right now. Right? There's these wars and there's troubles and there's evil things. Right? When they're appointed... You cannot avoid it. Uh, but there's, there's this temptation, right? It says here that this Antichrist will come and he says that, that some, uh, those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. And here's, here's part of what the message for us is, right? We want to avoid it, right? We want to avoid hardship. And we'll do anything maybe to avoid that hardship. And there's this temptation that says, look, if you just get on my team, It'll go good for you, right? And see, that's the that's the danger. That we will want the way of escape, but with Antiochus, the way of escape was what? It was to deny and stop worshiping God, right? To go along with his plan and worship Zeus in the temple. In the days of the Antichrist, it will mean the same thing. You will be forced to deny that you know God and worship Him. And that's, that's what these guys have in common. They come hungry for power, seeking to destroy God's people, and to put a, a, a complete end to the worship of God. Okay. And there's the temptation that says, look, if you just stop worshiping God, it's going to be good for you. You can't avoid it. You can escape the trouble. Okay. But it is a lie. It is a lie, Right? He is a destroyer, and it says in the end he will come out with fury and he will destroy, devote many to destruction. Right? In the end, he has no friends. Right? It's a trick. It's a lie. We cannot escape. But, the good news, that sounds bad, bad news. There is good news, though. We cannot escape and we cannot avoid it, but the good news is we can overcome. Right? Overcome. Overcome means... Not that we don't suffer, but that we are faithful and true to God through the suffering. Right? Uh, we worship Him no matter what. Right? Uh, we can turn away from God with the hope of escaping, or we can determine to worship Him and to persevere. Right? The good news is that these evil rulers rule for a very short time. Antiochus ruled for three years and was destroyed. The Antichrist, it says, will rule for three or three and a half years and he will come to his end, it says in verse 45. And Revelation 19 describes his defeat at the hands of Christ. And we'll look more at that next week. But let, let, me, let, me, just, uh, let me just say this as we close. Right? Uh, the future is not really what we need to fear. Right? Let me say that again. The future, the future rulers, the future of the world is not really what we need to fear. Right? That's not the problem. Uh, God will deliver us through that. God will give us power to overcome many places in Scripture. And that's really Daniel's message here. God will be with you. It will be hard. But when you face those hardships, God is with you. And if you are faithful, if you remain true to Him in worship, um, you, you will overcome. Right? That's not what you need to worry about. What you really need to worry about is not troubled times on earth, 
but the judgment we face in heaven. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 says this. At that time, that is after this Antichrist is destroyed, uh, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, the Israelites, and there shall be a time of trouble as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. This will be a time of epic trouble. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is found written in the book of life. And many of those, and the word here many really means all, all of those who sleep in the dust, all those who have died, shall awake, that shall be raised to new life, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Right? And those who are, who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Right? Those who worship God to the end, will be resurrected and they will stand before the judge and they will be given life. That is the day you need to fear. Right? That is the time in all of times that you need to fear when you stand before the judge. Because at that moment, you will go one of two ways and it is permanent. It is, Scripture is clear, it is eternal. You will either go to uh, eternal, everlasting life where you will shine bright as the, as the sky, uh, like, like, like the morning star forever and ever. As those who were worship, faithful worshiping God and turning many to righteousness. Or you will be judged and condemned and you will be raised to uh, shame and everlasting contempt. Right? That's the day we need to fear. Right? And, and that's, that's the reality that we need to arrange our whole life around. And the sad reality is that our human nature, we want to avoid pain here and now. I get that. <laughs> Who doesn't? Uh, we're kind of wired that way. It's a survival thing. Uh, but what we've got to realize is uh, that's just temporary. Right? And, and that's the, the point of Daniel. Yeah, trouble times are come, but... It's three and a half years. It's 1,230 days, or 60 days, 1,260 days, something like that. And it's over. Now, of course, that sounds like a long time. But you all remember COVID? It was about three and a half years, right? And praise God, it's done, right? And we made it through. And in the middle of it, I thought it was never going to end. I thought I was going to be wearing a mask and doing church in this room by myself for the rest of my life. But it was really a pretty short time, right? Troubles come, it's going to be short. Eternity lasts forever. When it says everlasting, it means everlasting, right? Um, Are you ready? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Are you living to worship God and bring others to righteousness with every fiber of your being? If so... You will be resurrected, raised up to everlasting life. But if you're living to escape and avoid trouble and control your life and do whatever it takes, even compromising truth, to get the easy way out, you will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.
www.ofgrace.org.